Chapter 20, Finding the Balance in Life. In the first chapter, the question was asked, are we going too fast? The impression seems to be that the only place to which one may go quickly is destruction. And since we are said to be going fast, then we must be going to the devil. Are we? But is not most of this talked-of speed used to get the day's work over and done with? What is really bothering most people is how to put in their spare time. That used to bother only what was called the leisure class. The workman in the old days, it is true, had plenty of spare time, for he was employed only a small part of the year. But his spare time could hardly be called leisure. He spent it trying to keep body and soul together. Now we find in our own industries that eight hours a day through five days a week gives all the production that is necessary to ask for on the man basis. Our workmen have leisure. Contrast this with the good old times, before management and power came into industry. Take the testimony of one Samuel Colson, given before a parliamentary committee in England in 1832. Colson had children in the mills. Question. At what time in the morning, in the brisk time, did those girls go to the mills? Answer. In the brisk time, for about six weeks, they have gone at three o'clock in the morning and ended at ten or nearly half past at night. Question. Had you not great difficulty in awakening your children to this excessive labor? Answer. Yes. In the early time, we had to take them up asleep and shake them when we got them on the floor to dress them before we could get them off to their work, but not so in the common hours. Question. What was the length of time they could be in bed during those hours? Answer. It was near eleven o'clock before we could get them into bed after getting a little victuals, and then at morning my missus used to stop up all night for fear that we could not get them ready for the time. Question. Were the children excessively fatigued by this labor? Answer. Many times. We have cried often when we have given them the little victualing we had to give them. We had to shake them, and they have fallen to sleep with the victuals in their mouths many a time. It was no problem for those children to employ their leisure time, nor had the adults a problem, for the twelve-hour day was usual, and the sixteen-hour day not at all exceptional. Those people were going fast. Today, only the machines are going fast. But our machines have to be tended with a clear brain, and management has to have a clear brain, else industry will drift back into the old man-killing stage. Working all the while muddles the brain. Playing all the time muddles the brain. We have to find some kind of a balance. This is something new in the world. In the not very distant past, people were divided into those who worked and those who played. It is easy enough to work all the time, although after a while not much brain goes into the work. It is not quite so easy to play all the time, but I understand that it can be done. The day's work is the center of everything. If the day's work be not done, then leisure must vanish. The world cannot be supported by play alone. The force of all this came up to me in my own life a long while ago, and ever since I have been searching for a balance. In the early days, of course, there was no balance. It was work, work all the while. That must be. But always have I found fun in a great many directions, 
the greatest fun of all being in the day's work. But it does not do to have only one interest, for then one cannot really get a perspective on that interest. There is recreation in the trees and in the birds, in walking across country, in motoring, in hunting up the objects which our fathers and our forefathers used and reconstructing life as they lived it. They knew how to order some parts of their lives better than we do. They had much better taste. They knew more about beauty and the design of commonplace everyday things. Nothing that is good ever dies. That is why we are taking over and reconstructing in their periods a couple of old inns, one in Massachusetts and another not far from Detroit. These old inns with their fine ballrooms reminded us more pointedly that one thing had passed out of our life, and that was real dancing. Dancing had become commercialized. It had gone from the home and the ballroom to badly ventilated restaurants, where, with only a few square feet of floor amid the tables, there could be no real dancing. The old American dancing was clean and healthful. In the square dances and the circle two-step, one finds rhythm and grace of motion, and people are thrown together and have to know one another. The old dances were social. The modern dances are not. The same two people may dance together all evening, but the old dances gave one a dozen partners in an evening. As a young man, I liked to dance, but the only dances we knew were what are now called the old-fashioned dances. The shottish, the polka, the chorus jig, quadrilles, gavottes, and the like. The younger people nowadays, so we found, did not know these dances, and the older people, those who really needed dancing, had grown rusty. They thought they were too old. <laughs> One never gets too old to dance. A number of men and women past 70 now come to our dances. And one fiddler who is 85 cannot only fiddle, but he can dance as he plays, which is getting ahead of the story. In our new laboratory building at Dearborn, we partitioned off a corner, which gives a ballroom big enough for 70 couples. We gathered together an orchestra. Out of Budapest, we brought a cymbalum without knowing whether we could find anyone to play it. A young Hungarian in the shops heard we had it and asked a chance to try his hand. He has proved to be a real musician and is no longer in the shops. Then we have a dulcimer, the mother of the piano, and which, like the cymbalum, is played with little hammers, and of course we have a violin and a sousaphone. This is the orchestra we have finally fixed upon, we searched out and reprinted all the old music we could find. But a deal of that music existed only in the minds of the old-time fiddlers who played and called at the country dances. That started us hunting for fiddlers, and we have already had forty or fifty of them from all over the country playing for us. Not so much for their playing, but to record the old country tunes. We are getting quite a library of old dance music and Mr. Edison and the Victor people have recorded some of it for the phonograph. It is fine to see how these old fiddlers come to life through their music. More than thirty years ago, out at the Botsford Tavern, when they had dances nearly every week, was a group of players who were rated as first class. We began to hunt them up. They had all prospered and had more or less retired, through one we found another, until finally we got all the members of the old orchestra together and gave a party, and it was a great party. 
The old men played for two hours, and they forgot that they were old. They had something in their music which the younger men, who are probably better players, did not seem to have. And they were keen, too. The oldest of them was dancing and playing, and he was eighty-five. We are all getting a great deal of fun out of dancing. We have our dancing classes two nights a week, and everyone has to learn to dance in absolutely the correct way, for a fine part of the old dancing was its deportment. The rules are followed. There is no holding up of two fingers for a dance, and no cutting in. The ladies do not enter the room unescorted, and must slightly precede the gentlemen. No one is expected to cross the center of the ballroom. Everything is formal. The instructions are all in the manual we have had written. No one objects to the formality. They like it as a change from the casualness which is so often rudeness. The experiment as an experiment is a success. It has been demonstrated that given a choice, people would rather have the tuneful music and the dances that go with it than the tuneless music with its ugly dances. Our complete repertoire is 14 dances. The two-step, the circle two-step, the waltz, the schottisch, the polka, the ripple, the minuet, the lanciers, the quadrille, the varsovienne, and so on, through the infinite variety of combinations. These dances have to be danced. There is no improvisation of steps. We are not, as has been imagined, conducting any kind of a crusade against modern dancing. We are merely dancing in the way that gives us the most pleasure. It seems to be rather a popular way, for a number of outside classes have asked to be taught, and we are looking after as many of them as we can. Primarily, we are having a good time out of the things of yesterday, and that is the reason for the Wayside Inn and the Botsford Inn. The Wayside Inn at South Sudbury, Massachusetts, is one of the oldest in the country. We are a new country, and nothing is very old, but the Wayside Inn has housed George Washington and the Marquis de Lafayette, and through Longfellow's Tales of a Wayside Inn, has become a part of the nation. When it came up for sale, we bought it, not at all as a personal matter, but to preserve for the public. The inn expressed the pioneer spirit, and the pioneer spirit is what America has, over and above any other country. If ever we lose that spirit, if ever we get to the point where a majority of the people are afraid to do things because no one before them has done them, or because they are hard to do, then we shall stop going forward and start to go back. I deeply admire the men who founded this country, and I think we ought to know more about them, and how they lived, and the force and courage they had. Of course, we can read about them, but even if the account we are reading happens to be true, and often it is not, it cannot call up the full picture. The only way to show how our forefathers lived and to bring to mind what kind of people they were, is to reconstruct, as nearly as possible, the exact conditions under which they lived. Those of us who are older can still think in terms of the life of the pioneers, but the generation growing up is in a different world from the one we grew up in. The younger generation knows a good deal about automobiles and airplanes and the radio and the movies, but it has little to go on when it comes to comprehending the pioneers and what they stood for. At first we had no intention of doing more than buying the inn and restoring it, but since it is on a public road, there was nothing at all to prevent its surroundings from being exploited. 
We had to preserve the setting, and so we bought enough additional land for that. We went about getting the inn back into its original condition, all except one bedroom. This we have named the Edison Room, and have furnished it as of the time of Mr. Edison's birth. There was a good deal to be done. We tore out the brickwork which had closed up many of the old fireplaces, and now we have sixteen big fireplaces, some of them big enough to hold logs that take three men to lift. We have restored the floors. The old inn was lighted by candles in wall sconces and in candlesticks. These had been replaced by ordinary electric light fixtures. We could not, as a practical matter, go back to candlelight, for the fire risk would have been too great. We finally managed to get sconces such as were used in the inn, and to get candle-shaped electric lights, which very well imitate the old candles. Then we went out to find some of the relics of the inn which had disappeared, and most of them we have found. One trunk, for instance, we located and brought back from Kansas. The old Bible we managed to repair, and we put it in its old Bible case so that it will last for a long time. The old clock had not been running for many years. It was made in England in 1710, and many of the parts were badly worn, although other parts, in spite of all the years of service, were as good as new. We made new parts to replace the worn ones, but we saved all the old parts and have them in a case. Thus, bit by bit, we have the inn about as it was when Washington passed there during the Revolution. And the furniture did not give us much trouble. We had a rather large collection of New England furniture of the period, and the inn itself had a great many fine pieces which only needed expert repairing. Having finished the inn and bought all the surrounding land, we then began to put the whole neighborhood into somewhat of its former condition. We picked up two old sawmills of the time, one of them in Rhode Island. These we are reassembling. On the property was already a grist mill with a breast water wheel which was grinding only feed. This we are putting back into the exact condition it was in during the Revolution, with an overshot wheel, so that it will grind wheat, rye, and corn. We are working on an old blacksmith shop, and shall have it ready with the forge, tools, and benches of the time. Perhaps we shall get more of these shops together, for there is a lesson in the old village industries. In the barn of the inn we are gathering the coaches and rigs of the time. The coach house is not large enough to hold more than a couple of specimens of the collection. One of the most interesting of the old coaches is the Governor Eustace, in which it is said Daniel Webster and Lafayette rode in 1825 to the dedication of the Bunker Hill Monument. We have a collection of old plows and other farming tools, and we have oxen to draw them, just as the pioneers did. By the time we get through, we expect to have this section, not a museum of revolutionary days, but a natural working demonstration of how the people of those days lived. We have both lost and gained in the movement of modern industry. Our gains are many times greater than our losses, and we can keep all of the gains and repair some of the losses. The Wayside Inn represents a period of about 250 years ago. On the Grand River Road, 16 miles from Detroit, stands another inn, formerly known as the Sixteen Mile House, but now as the Botsford Inn, after Frank Botsford, who was its proprietor for a long time, although the inn has not been operating as such for many years. It dates back about 100 years, and is a fine specimen of the last century's type of roadhouse in a comparatively new country, 
for Michigan was a wilderness when Massachusetts was a fairly settled country. We bought this inn, moved it back from the road, and we have made it over to simulate the original inn. It is now open to the public. We have the old kitchen with the big fireplace, which had been closed, and the Dutch oven, but we also have concealed a new kitchen, just as we have at the Wayside Inn, with electrical cooking apparatus and every known modern aid. You may pass from a kitchen of a hundred years ago into a kitchen of today. For a long time, we have been active in collecting for preservation all kinds of Americana. That collection has grown until now it covers several acres in one of our buildings at Dearborn. It is not as yet an ordered collection. We want to have something of everything. We have types of every sort of wagon and carriage ever used in this country, from the covered wagon of the pioneer to the last style of buggy. We have nearly every type of agricultural instrument, every type of musical instrument. We have all kinds and sorts of furniture and household effects. One of these days, the collection will have its own museum at Dearborn, and there we shall reproduce the life of the country in its every age. <laughs>